Welcome to DC EKG, where we diagnose Washington, D.C.'s policy diseases and provide needed prescriptions. I'm Joe Grogan, along with Eric Euland. We want to thank our sponsor, Survivors for Solutions, which is run by our very talented producer, John C.Z. Swartaki. John is a survivor himself, and he fights to make every patient a survivor both today and tomorrow. Today, we're happy to welcome Chris Jones to the podcast. Chris is a senior fellow and vice president for healthcare policy at the Cicero Institute. He previously served as the commissioner of the Department of Health and Human Services under Governor Doug Burgum from the state of North Dakota. He was responsible for strategic planning and daily operational oversight of a department with 2,700 employees and an annual budget of $3 billion. Prior to that, Chris was a Senior Vice President for Strategy and Business Development for Catholic Health Initiatives, now Common Spirit, and was responsible for providing leadership and setting the stage for transformational healthcare delivery change. Chris, thanks for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me on. So let's start with your time with the Governor of North Dakota, uh, Doug Burgum, and your uh, tenure as HHS. Uh, commissioner. There's been a lot of talk about uh, Governor Burgum potentially having a role in a future Republican administration if President uh, Trump were to win. And you know, one position that maybe he should be considered for, people should watch for, would be if he were to be Secretary of Health and Human Services. So I was wondering maybe if you could walk Eric and I in the audience through uh, top line, what were some of Burgum's big uh, in priorities and initiatives that he focused on when he was governor? When Governor Burgum came in, he, he was one of those governors who switched out more of the cabinet than is typical for a new Republican coming in. And he did have a true mindset that we needed a balance between public and private in terms of experience. And as it related to, at that time, Department of Human Services, his number one area was Medicaid. And that is how I was recruited to come in. And he had already done his due diligence uh, with with a large consulting firm uh, to look at Medicaid managed care and, and really wanted to look at that. And at that time, the initial idea to merge the Department of Health and Human Services came to be. And when we started looking at this, I came from Catholic Health Initiatives, where my primary incentives were to either grow revenue or grow market share. So in my mind, I was under the mindset that Medicaid was a poorly administered program that did not pay enough. And there are some administrative failures that are, are within Medicaid, but they most of them were not at the state level. And so they were at the federal level. And in North Dakota, we expanded Medicaid in 2014. And when that happened, without going way into the weeds, there was only one health plan chosen. So the state needed a waiver for only one managed care organization within the Medicaid expansion. Traditional was fee-for-service. And the... The health plan and the hospitals convinced the legislature that expansion is 100% reimbursed by the feds. It will only go to 90-10, so we're going to pay commercial rates. 
So then I was still with Catholic Health Initiatives and we said, okay, we'll, we'll contract with you. We know you need us. You give us 95% of charges because if we're not in your network, you don't, you can't serve the Medicaid beneficiaries across the state. So because we were, were getting, you were so bit, sorry, because the, that hospital system is so big, you absolutely have to have them serving Medicaid patients or there's just no way for them to get access to care. Exactly. And it's not that at that time, CHI was not the largest because we hadn't acquired a hospital in Bismarck yet, but we had three of the four second tier cities. And without us, you couldn't serve the state of North Dakota. So we just said 95% of charges in 2014. We had no contracts that were percent of charges. So we jacked our charge master up and thought it was the best thing ever. I came in halfway through session, my first session, and the state had just done an allotment due to a crash in oil prices. So there were cuts being made everywhere. And it was, how do we keep these high expansion rates? Because at that time it was probably 95.5 on the expansion. And I spent my first six to nine months trying to find money to make the 5% up because I thought it was a good, a good thing to have high Medicaid expansion rates. Working in the Department of Human Services within a year, it became very clear to me that it was having the opposite effect, not only as it related to priorities of the department, but more importantly, the impact it had on prices across the state. And so that next budget cycle with the governor, we spent a lot of time going through the economics of healthcare prices and having to discuss that just because the feds give you 90% doesn't make it good policy. So Chris, could I stop you there for amateur Eric, uh, the the dumbest guy in the podcast? Is what you're saying essentially what had been set up, incentivized, or created a structure for your then employer to charge the most they could for a variety of healthcare services for the Medicare population, but that once you got to the other side of the equation, when you started looking at it from an efficacy, efficiency, and certainly an output perspective and a benefit to Medicaid enrollees, turned out that wasn't the case, that you were seeing your budgets blow up, but you weren't necessarily delivering quality health care attendant to or along with that expanded amount of money you were spending? Exactly. I mean, within the Medicaid program, you could say that we created the haves and have-nots. So those in Medicaid expansion had greater access to care than those in fee-for-service. Now, providers and others will say, we do not pick and choose who we serve. We serve all who come through the door. But there is a difference in being able to get on a provider's panel based on payer mix. So, so you're at this that's, point with the governor and you're, you, you've got the numbers. He's already committed to or conducted this evaluation of Medicaid before you come aboard. So when you're looking at the numbers, you're looking at the value for the amount of spend. What is it that you ultimately come up with to propose and change for the state under the governor's leadership? His first budget address, he presented moving Medicaid expansion into fee-for-service at the same rates that fee-for-service was at. And that was 
that that started that was the first battle of of many wars with with the healthcare systems and remember most most of these individuals are my friends i mean i i would constantly say i feel like benedict arnold but benedict arnold on the right side of policy and the right side of humanity um i didn't i wasn't a turncoat i turned sides because i could see the whole picture and i i'm still i still feel for those who haven't had my same experience to really understand it and so somewhat hold myself accountable that couldn't get them to see the other side of it because storytelling is so important so you have this first battle in a long set of wars are is the governor and are you successful both in pulling off the policy with the legislature but then implementing it with healthcare providers in the state the short answer is we lost far more battles than we won um it's probably the the thing that i'm most disappointed never getting to so the state of north dakota probably like many other states when the feds give money everyone says it's free money they they see it as a way to they think that cost shifting occurs and you can if you put money here it's good for the economy and we we could never we could never get there what we were able to do in that first session then at the 11th hour was say, okay, it was somewhat a, a real weak reference-based pricing. What we said is the managed care organization within your current appropriation and going through the actuaries, because again, it's managed care. We said, unless you have a quality or value-based payment model or option within your contract, all similarly situated providers will receive the same reimbursement. And frankly, the hospitals were so upset about that, even though a third of them actually had their rates increased, some substantially, but they're not going to raise their hand and say, oh, I'm getting more money now because no one knew because under that managed care arrangement, no one knew what anybody else was getting paid. But Chris, back up we, for a second. Can you explain what the input, what, what is the practical, wh- why was that so important for you guys to push it from a policy perspective and from a practical perspective, what does that mean for providers and for patients, frankly, who are going in to get, to get a service and, um, you know, the previous construct had warped who was prioritized uh, uh, and now you're going to a new model, a new approach How's, how, why was it important for you to change that approach and, and how was it going to play out? Yeah, so, so a number of different things. Uh, one, Catholic Health Initiatives, for example, you know, large system, the critical access hospitals that were in North Dakota at that time had seven, seven of the 36. And they were getting more reimbursement than every other critical access hospital in the state. Some, some by sometimes factors of three. And there are some critical access hospitals. They don't, the independent ones do not have, I would say, the same managerial expertise on contracting and other forms of operation, but they still perform a valuable service. So when I saw that, I said, if we are focused on making sure there's access for all beneficiaries, that would be reason number one. Reason number two is there was 
only one managed care organization, and they were also the largest healthcare provider in the state. So they were controlling what the reimbursement was to different providers for whatever reason. So whether or not there was a conflict of interest or favoritism going on, it did set up a situation where it could be. Third, we were trying to push quality and the hospitals would say, look, we're high quality, we're high quality, just believe us. So we said, okay, let's start our journey towards value-based purchasing within Medicaid expansion by giving that carrot to pay providers differently should they demonstrate higher quality that the health plan could have determined. To no one's surprise, there was never a quality program put into place. So that, that is where that ended up. And, and to be fair, the, the legislators were starting at this point to become really interested because I changed my, my view of the world. So it was a very hot, contested legislative session. Um, so much to the point, even as a side note, the, the entire subcommittee said, Chris, we're going to meet in the physician's lounge. And we just want to ask you questions so we don't look like we don't know what we're talking about. Because it's hard to ask you a question in an open meeting. Well, I mean, I'm being followed by everyone. And then the AP shows up and we broke open records laws, front page of the paper. And they just wanted to learn. And I think that that's what's really hard about this is we talk about an open and transparent government, but we don't really have it on the healthcare side. I mean, aside from PBMs and all the other lack of transparency, whether it's price transparency or whatever, why can't lawmakers know what's in a managed care contract for Medicaid? Why can't lawmakers and the general public know what's in the state employee health benefit contract? Why can't they know rates? Why can't they know the medical loss ratio? Why can't they know their profit? Why can't they know their admin costs? Because come and say, well, that's competitive information. Well, I, I would tend to disagree. And if that was public, that would help drive prices down in the commercial market as well, because you can say, well, look, you're doing it here. Why can't you do it here? So you're dealing with a set of big challenges. You're winning some battles, but you're losing more than you win. Nevertheless, by the time you're finished with your tenure here, when it came to Medicaid, were there indications or indices, I guess, indexes, that showed for Medicaid enrollees, the state did a better job courtesy of some of these policy changes. The state's budget was in a better position courtesy of these policy changes. You've explored and put really creative policy ideas on the table, some of which have uptake and persist to this day. Things like that kind of give us a sense, especially 10 years on after that first battle, kind of what you think about how it all turned out. Yeah, it's, it's definitely going in the right direction. So by the next legislative session, we only had one bidder for Medicaid expansion in the state, and that was Blue Cross Blue Shield. So in some ways, that previous issue I brought up is, is no longer there. Blue Cross Blue Shield already has a value-based purchasing program within their Blue Alliance plan for their commercial. And they, for the most part, put that into the Medicaid expansion side. So there was value, at least initial value-based purchasing that wasn't exactly for what a true Medicaid beneficiary would be, 
but at least it was something that the hospitals knew and Blue Cross could administer. At the same time, we got value-based purchasing passed on the fee-for-service side. So we're, we started this transition to value. And then I think the, the, the big wins at the end of the last session is we did get Medicaid expansion rates down to no more than 145% of Medicare. Um, so, and with the idea like we're, you know, keep, keep taking them down. There's this idea that we're taking all this money out of the system. Well, when you look at the last time we did the analysis, the healthcare market in North Dakota was about $8 billion annually. And we were taking out 1% is all. So it was a 1% reduction in the overall economy as it relates to Medicaid expansion. Well, and then I'd, I'd say the last win, um, which was getting a healthcare task force, not a healthcare cost commission, but a task force during the interim that includes legislators, providers, experts, to really start to have all these discussions about where the money goes and what are potential policy solutions prior to legislative session. And it's not just focused on Medicaid expansion, it's focused on Medicaid and expansion. What levers do the legislature have? It's focused on the state employee benefit plans. What levers does the legislature have in that area and can also use that as an innovation lab as it relates to other policies? And then on the commercial side, the insurance commissioner, what can they do from a free market, quote unquote, health insurance market in the state of North Dakota to really help to curb healthcare cost growth and ensure affordability as well as accessibility. That sounds like it could be extremely valuable if, you, if you've got a cross-functional group like that looking at all the different levers that you might be able to employ. Um, taking a step back for a second, I want to go back to your second to last point about the variable rates, just to make sure people understand this. So you've got the expansion population, which the federal government reimburses North Dakota at 90 cents on the dollar. State only puts in 10%. What was the traditional Medicaid population reimbursement rate? For those who don't know, that's traditionally the disabled people, you know, women with children or adults with a dependent child um, that may not be able to work. What Do you remember what that reimbursement rate is? Yes. When I left, it was about 52%. Uh, okay. So FMAP. 52% FMAP. Okay. And then the, um, and then you have the Medicare uh, um, system, which is pretty much all federal money coming in. So when you have different federal uh, reimbursement rates for the for the same low income type population. They're both they're low income population in Medicaid. What you're saying is the state was paying more for the people for the able bodied adults who were low income versus the traditional population, which when it was first set up, the poster child was a single mother with a child who'd been abandoned or widowed or for whatever reason didn't have a two parent household. Um, so there's this incredible warping that has occurred because of the Affordable Care Act variable uh, reimbursement rate that a lot of people are not paying attention to. And that increased reimbursement rate for the expansion population is hurting 
uh, care for the traditional population. Exactly. Is that fair? And I think care and access. That, that's care and access. And I think more on North Dakota is, I believe it was 97, there was the Frontier States Amendment where Medicare rates, the, the, the wage index was at like 0.84. The, the senators from North Dakota at that time were very powerful, got that wage index artificially pushed up to one. And then that, be, and then that was being renewed every other Congress. Mm-hmm. Then the ACA pass, that Frontier States Amendment is in there now at one for, I, I believe, six states across the board. So it's not even looking at what that wage index should be. Number, right. you know, number one. Um, but anyway, that's, that's where that came. And, you know, Eric, the other, you know, Joe, you, when you bring up, you know, who Medicaid is for, and when Eric, you said, you know, mostly failures, I would say the failures were in that healthcare, like working with hospitals, but what healthcare is such a broad term. And I, I, the things that I'm most proud of probably least to most, um, one, we changed the DD payment system to not be paid on cost, but to be paid on client needs. We changed What's the long-term that? care. Can you just explain that to DD payments? Yeah. So for developmentally disabled, what used to happen okay. in the state of North Dakota is the providers would send in their costs and Medicaid would cost settle and pay them. Now for some of those providers, they would make mistakes on their cost report we'd have to claw money back and they would go out of business or there would need to be a separate appropriation. We changed that payment model. So it's, it's, there's actually a reimbursement guide that actually pays at that time based on the needs of the client. So cash flows became more consistent for the providers and the dollars went to those individuals who had the greatest needs. Long-term care, we moved from a cost-based system into a price-based system. That transition is happening over time. And rightly or wrongly, we had too many long-term care beds, so much so that we had a settlement with the DOJ, but we were able to change that to create a more free market system within the long-term care market. And then the two big things that I'm quite proud of that, well, actually there's probably three, but they all relate to kids um, and really who, who is Medicaid to serve. And so we used to have this is going to sound like a small number, but we used to have a hundred kids out of state. Um, when I left, we had zero. We reduced the site. We eliminated all group homes. Half of those group homes converted to a short stay um, PRTF. So we are institutionally wait, 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 institutionalizing. Yeah, what's, what's that? Oh, what's a PRTF? Um, so, um, partial treatment residential facility. Okay. And so. You know, but but looking at all this, when we're talking about health, kids are learning health behaviors right away, right. and they have trauma in their life. So if we want to reduce the Medicaid spend and reduce vulnerable adults, we have to make the right investment in kids who could be vulnerable. So so there's there's that component, and then finally, the reason I stayed as long as I did, aside from COVID is really having a strategy around zero to five and then making sure we're making the right investments. We sold it during the last legislative session, primarily as a workforce strategy, but it's more about you look at the brain development and look at how kids can be successful, but it's not just putting money out to 
childcare providers, it's actually holding childcare providers accountable as well. So, you know, even though the Medicaid side from a hospital was not as successful as I would like it to be, all of these other things that everybody did, I'm, I feel very good about. And Cicero couldn't have reached out to me at a more perfect time because I am so committed to busting the cost shifting myth what are healthcare right. prices? Because we are on an unaffordability track that is going to hurt all of these vulnerable individuals if we don't get this under control. Well, that's kind of the money line, isn't it? I mean, you you kind of are being very modest in saying, oh, we had more, more losses than wins. But the fact of the matter is most states pretend that this warping is not occurring. They pretend that there aren't any problems and all that they need is more money from the feds. And they're constantly playing this game, this shell game of moving money around from one pot to another, um, taxing this healthcare provider, uh, oftentimes to to um, put it back into a different pot and keep this money flowing. And then they just go back to the feds. And nobody's talking about this warping that's occurring between the expense. Certainly the media is not talking about the um, the screwed up consequences uh, due to the, frankly, immoral differential in the reimbursement rates between the expansion population and the traditional population. Um, but you, uh, before we before we go on, uh, you did touch upon this uh, obliquely. You merged the Department of Health with Human Services, right, in, in North uh, Dakota. Was that your call? Was it the governor's call? How did you guys work, figure out that this needed to be done and why'd you do it? Yeah, I, I think this is this is an interesting story. So when when the governor came in, I was recruited. Um, he recruited a state health officer who was a nurse, and right away it's how do we merge these two agencies? And right away it was we had meetings at what was called the White House, and um, it was a White House across the street. We didn't want to have them at the Capitol, and we tried to work it out, and we we couldn't get there. Um, it, we just couldn't get there. And then COVID occurred. Um, and one of the things that the governor saw COVID as an excellent opportunity. And I, I had a boss that said, you know, there's, there's opportunity in chaos. So EY came in and said, let's look at trying to reduce the size of government, reduce the size of departments, reduce the number of cabinets. And right away, EY's like merge Department of Health and Human Services. And everyone's like, yeah, we've been talking about that. So we started on a path. During 2020, I think we had five state health officers. Uh, so there was that's not that same level of communication, but there was, I was trying to figure out how that state health officer could still be a practicing physician so that they were relevant and really trying to create a dyad model for a health and human services. And the legislature was a great legislative leaders like Chris, now's the time to do it. Let's do it. And then unfortunately, as we were recruiting the current state health officer, it came as a surprise to the governor. Uh, I thought I had communicated well with the governor's office, so, you know, lesson learned. And there were so many machinations during that legislative session because both, both agencies had different cultures. Department of Health was more regulatory. Department of Human Services was far more delivery. There was inappropriate... Or, you know, the grass is always greener. Each department had something different. You know, what are their benefits? What are our benefits that aren't written in the, you know, the unwritten benefits? 
and working through those, it was it was pretty contentious. And you know, the Department of Health and Human Services were exhausted from COVID. But it actually did uh, merge together. The thing I would have done differently um, is, you know, just say they're merged on July one when policy comes into place and move forward. But we did bring in uh, a consultant to come in and try to merge the two together. Which, in actuality, nothing really happened. We just spent a lot of money. And then on September 1st, we started making the change. We primarily focused on the shared services model to start with. We had turnover at the Medicaid side. There are so many opportunities with Medicaid, legitimate opportunities with Medicaid, not like Medicaid doing housing or providing for food. I'm not talking about those crazy ideas that other states are doing right now. But within public health, there are so many opportunities to use Medicaid with your public health department to more efficiently and effectively deliver services. So that's really where it started. And then changing this idea of what is hap- you know, things that happen, you know, the Department of Human Services did licensure for behavioral health and assisted living. Department of Health did licensure for virtually everything else and never the two shall meet. Very inefficient. So some of those smaller things we work together to, to bring together, but it'll be 10 years before it's completely integrated. But Chris, as you kind of talk a little bit about this story and this challenge and you helming this change, to your point, while it might take a decade, is progress continuing? Is integration slowly but surely going ahead? Are people that the integrated agency now serves having a better opportunity to receive those sorts of services? And in terms of, you know, some of those new responsibilities the department brought on, you know, through and after COVID, have those also been integrated into the mix as well? I'd say structurally less. Structurally, yes, they have. Culturally, no, they haven't. And again, that that is the work that's going to take time. Another, what I would think, I think is a big win and will help the integration. In North Dakota, as in many states, the legislature appropriates dollars for salaries, and then they separately appropriate FTEs. And in my time there, we never added one FTE. So we had credibility in how we were going about doing things. And I'd be remiss not to say at the same, this same session, the legislature passed going from a defined benefit to a defined contribution. So as I worked with legislative leadership, I said, the reason, the number one reason you were probably appropriating FTE is because that's a future liability that the state holds in the defined benefit plan. But I said also, as we do this integration, we can't wait two years and come back and say, we want to shift FTEs across departments, I mean, often to, across divisions, because they would even get involved like this, these FTEs go in behavioral health, these go in SNAP, these go here. It's like, give us the flexibility to do it. We will stay within our appropriation and we will pick the best employees to do the best work based on the needs. So that is, that's ongoing now. We're at the same time for every other agency in the state, elected, cabinet, they tightened the screws even more and became more restrictive on FTEs. So like there's this, who's going to come up with the better model going forward? What, what they put forward is a bureaucratic nightmare that makes absolutely no sense. And I think they're starting to realize that because it's not going to save anything. It just created more work for the Office of Management and Budget and agencies themselves. 
So Chris, right. uh, the governor has a great reputation as a very good manager, not just steward of public resources, but obviously in the private sector, very successful. What sort of management tools did you bring or did he offer to you to make sure that this would work well, that you would have successes and that you were able to pass on as you left uh, the integrated department? Yes. So in, in all in all honesty, I was recruited. He hired a recruiting firm um, to bring people in, and I never thought I'd do this. He had a great recruiter, and he said, you need to meet Jody Euchre, who was at his right side through the beginning of Great Plains, and she followed him to Microsoft. And she is the most dynamic manager. And so within 30 minutes of meeting her, I only one of the only times I said, I said, when can I start? I hadn't even met the governor yet. I'd met him at a, some functions, but I, we had never even met. I said, when, when can I start? Uh, so his, his, here's what I'd say about Governor Burgum, and I'm so disappointed he didn't make it further in the presidential race. I still think he would have been the best candidate, but everyone can understand that I'm probably biased. He is an amazing leader, and his superpower is really when you're one-on-one -on -one with him, to buy off on the vision and think that you can accomplish anything. And he will make you believe that and you will go and do it. But the other thing is he hires really great people um, to the Jody Euchre example. So, I mean, for me, one of the things that I think I, I did the best at is a good chunk of the executive management team turned over in the first couple of years and I recruited hard. I mean, I recruited one of the top-notch Medicaid directors in the country, um, worked in Washington, worked for Molina, worked on repeal and replace. I mean, just super smart. Hired someone who is, was very well respected in economic assistance and housing, and she brought that on. Um, those are the first two that come. We had a really great behavioral health director. I mean, it was all about building the team in order to get the work done. I, over time, um, I one of the first things that I got asked when I started that I was like, I, I'm not made for this job is they said, Chris, the governor, you know, said lower flags, a half staff, you need to call every community behavioral health clinic and all the properties and make sure they lower the flags. I was like, that is not my job. There, there's just no way I'm spending time on that. What I, what I learned over time is my job was to push the strategies that the governor wanted pushed forward, whether explicitly or implicitly, develop a relationship with the legislature, and really put out fires for the team so they could do their work. So, Chris, so, two quick questions on that anecdote. One, did those flags all go down? And two, <laughs> how did you find the person to make sure... They passed a message that all those flags needed to come down to half staff. I don't know. I just knew that if no one ever called, it isn't an issue. So <laughs> it, it's all about picking your priorities. Well, right? let's make sure the governor doesn't necessarily hear this part of the conversation. <laughs> but I get your point. The, the, bigger, the bigger idea here that when you're hired to lead and manage, it's important to keep your focus on that big picture of the old Steve Jobs anecdote that, look, my, my responsibility here is make one or two big decisions a day. 
<laughs> everybody else here, your job is to both execute, but also bring me ultimately bang through however you did it, these big questions for me to answer. Because if I veer from that, then our corporation, our business is going to go down the tubes. So it's a great insight. And again, I think a reflection of the governor's management style. Yes. I mean, in again, his superpower is one-on-one. So I would have loved to be a, a fly in Trump's plane when they were flying to New York and what they were talking about. So let me ask about another issue that uh, the governor cares a lot about. I'd met him a couple of times uh, during the Trump administration at the White House. He was talking about um, addiction, which is something I believe that the first lady of North Dakota uh, cared a great deal about. And you uh, recently wrote a great white paper about homelessness and mental illness. And I know you care about addiction as well. Maybe you could talk a little bit about the governor's passion for the issue, but also can you describe uh, briefly your white paper and, and what you're arguing in that for listeners? Yeah. Um, as it relates to the governor, obviously the first lady is in recovery, so that that is part of it. But I also think he has a fair amount of humility in when he started campaigning and learning about the impact addiction has on individuals and families and getting to know them. It just, and, and the recognition that it is a disease that anyone can get. Why do we treat it so differently? And it impacts, it's one of those diseases that impacts everybody around you. So he, I think that was a newer thing and it carried through not only through the Department of Health and Human Services, but also through corrections. Because again, you know, when you look at it, we're trying to do some, some type of rehabilitation. As it relates to involuntary civil commitment, th- th- this is still a tough topic because it, again, it, it's still not the ideal solution because unfortunately people with a severe mental illness or SMI or addiction, because there's not the services and supports around them, will oftentimes become involved in the criminal justice system. And so those things have unfortunately been coupled together. But as it relates to involuntary civil commitment, this is the new analogy I'm, I'm sharing. If you have an individual with a developmental disability who puts themselves at risk, we as a state through Medicaid put a number of supports around them. And it's, it's an IQ, it's something that is going on in their brain that they can't comprehend. We have this view, and, and this is a, a fine line we got to walk through, but from a liberty perspective, if you don't know that you're sick and you can't take care of yourself, why do we say, oh yeah, it's your choice whether or not you take your meds? To me, that doesn't make any sense. So if we provided the right supports around them, there would be less crime committed and individuals may not have the same liberties, but they certainly would be more successful as human beings and would create safer communities. But as it relates to involuntary civil commitment, then the government has put in these arbitrary rules, frankly, to manage capacity. 
So you have to jump through, you have to, historically, we've made it so hard to involuntarily civilly commit that people give up, number one. And then number two, we put these arbitrary discharge dates on them, regardless if they've gotten better or not. And Chris, just and pause so, you there. When you say people have given up, are you talking healthcare providers, mental health care experts, the police and law enforcement community, the, the sufferers themselves? Who, who's given up? I, I probably shouldn't have used those terms, but it's, it's everyone. The justice system is frustrated. Police are frustrated. They're filling up jails, the healthcare providers. I mean, frankly, I closed two inpatient psych units in the hospitals I help run because they were too difficult. And I mean, I talk about a change of heart, but they were too difficult to run. It made more sense to focus on OB and ortho and cancer and primary care. So when you're spending way too much time on that. So when you close two facilities like that, they're serving a population, obviously, of those with mental distress or mental health challenges. How then are you providing resources and assistance to people who can no longer go to those facilities? What did you innovate to make sure that there was the ability to deal with those with significant mental health issues? When I was on the private side or the public side? Public side, for sure, because public in side. your public role, you're shutting things down. Well, then there must be creative alternatives there to make sure that communities ultimately know that there are places that they can take people suffering from mental health distress for, for treatment and assistance. Yeah, well, certainly we, we didn't do enough. There's still not enough community support. But I would point out one of the more successful programs started on the justice-involved side and has moved out of it. But it is called Free Through Recovery. And what it is, depending on someone's score, they are assigned a coach from a nonprofit. And then that coach who's a, a peer support works with them to find them stable housing, employment, helps them stay out of being justice involved, and then be in active recovery. But the way we set it up as a state is it's paid on outcomes. So that provider needs to meet with their client three out of those four measures to receive a substantial, I, I want to say it's 25 to 30% of their overall payment in order to make it work. Uh, and actually, before I joined the state, I was on the board of Face It Together, which is one of those providers. I had to leave given the conflict of interest, and now I'm back as the board chair. And I'm amazed at how successful it's become. Um, I wish we had more providers in it. But it's, it's one of those quiet things that we've been really successful in making a difference. How would you do that, Chris, knowing what you know now, your experience in the public and on the private side? How would you incentivize more providers to uh, get in to this space? And, and the same with the hospital um, in psych treatment. Uh, in, I'm sorry, in, in-house psychiatric treatment that you said um was very difficult to manage what is it a question of reimbursement rates do we not have enough treaters uh is it a safety issue should they be co should they be located off-site from the medical you know the trauma facility or what what do you do to make sure these people get care well as it relates to the peer support that free through recovery i think it's on the state to do more recruitment and working with foundations to help set up 
not-for-profit organizations to do this, number one. Um, and then number two, I mean, everybody's in, in a competitive world. But when I came back and saw the financials of Face It Together, I was like, you guys are doing marvelous. Where's, where's the outcomes? And they have all the outcomes there. And they're like, we don't want to necessarily share that with everybody else because we want to keep capturing clients. So I, I think there's this whole how you get nonprofits and the private entities to know what's going on in order to enter that market. And then as it relates to as, as much as I would get calls from legislators and constituents on the gaps in services and the public behavioral health system, coming to Cicero and working with other states, I honestly couldn't be more proud of what North Dakota has done because I didn't realize how bad many of these other states are in and their needs. Now, granted, there's not a lot of homeless that come to North Dakota. So we already are at a competitive advantage as it relates to that population. But how we serve, how we treat, and how we support recovery, whether that's from a severe mental illness or addiction, so important. I re- One of the other stories is, and I can't remember what the program was called because we don't have it anymore, but the behavioral health leader at the Department of Human Service, she's like, Chris, I think I found someone who will answer a call from those who are struggling with addiction, a confidential line. This is before we had peer support and actually walk them through how to get better. She had multiple felonies. She had lost her children. She had just you know, been sober for, I don't know how many years, but not that long. And she's like, Chris, we need to hire her. I was like, oh, this could not be, I, I'm, I'm really not sure. And she eventually twisted my arm enough to the governor's office they said Let, let's try it and it was a very successful program so it sounds as if kind of to your point in being driven with a passion and a mission and uh, with the support of a great principal the governor in terms of how best to prioritize and then execute there's a lot of creative policy underway in north dakota at least for me, my final question, how would you think about the governor or anybody else coming to D.C., as Joe mentioned at the beginning, and scaling some of this stuff up, how to partner with states, how to incentivize states, localities, communities to drive down a much more successful road and in so doing both enhance outcomes while at the same time keeping an eye on the dollars and cents and bottom line of federal budget, and certainly here, a lot of state innovation, state budgets as well. That's that's a great question. It's making me think differently because there's very few things I see coming out of the feds that ever make sense in order to get the right groups to come together. I mean, to start with, I, the way Medicaid is financed in general is, is wrong. Um, I, I've just gotten to know Brian Blaze and reading his work, um, whether doing block grants, um, you know, how the FMAP works and letting states actually use the Medicaid program to what we talked about earlier for the vulnerable population, not as a strategy, perhaps maybe to get to a single payer system. Medicaid needs to focus on the vulnerable and each state has its own types of vulnerable populations. And I think they should just be required to say, this is how we're using the dollars and define vulnerability 
and where gaps are, and you move the dollars there. Instead of this, you know, everybody gets the same and we're going to determine who is vulnerable in order for you to get federal dollars. When, when we would, when we sold the budget each session, the, and the first time I did it, I got in so much trouble from the provider community because we said we quality, efficient, and effective human services. Underneath the efficient column was a line, just because the feds give you money does not mean it's a priority for North Dakota. And that did not go well. I also said that services reimbursed within the Department of Human Services are not economic development. The goal should be to get rid of them. So I think any way you could, from a federal level, how do you incense states to have outcomes to actually reduce, but still meeting the needs of the vulnerable is, is what's important. I mean, I would tell the foster care system, I would love to go out of business. That is our goal. So how you create those incentives is really the question. I don't have the best answer for you. I'm sorry. I wish I did. But that this That's question right. should be asked on the federal level and an effort made to try to find answers seems like a place where you're at and encouraging policymakers to think like that in the next administration. So, Chris, let's uh, conclude with talking a little bit about Cicero and your work there. So uh, why'd you go to Cicero? What excites you about being there? You've obviously uh, been successful in the private sector and you were successful in, in North Dakota. You could have gone to another state, I'm sure, um, with a governor who was interested in, in innovating uh, in healthcare. Why Cicero? Well, the short answer is, is I received a call from Cicero asking, would you be interested? And it, it really came at the right time. I knew I was not going to stay as the Commissioner of Health and Human Services much longer, but hadn't spent much time thinking about what to do next. Because again, I was also interested in um, how do we best invest in early childhood, like effectively to get returns? Because I knew that, I know that is going to solve the behavioral health issues we have today for the next generation. But going through the last legislative session, the healthcare task force and that, I was like, I have to find a way to channel my, frankly, frustration in watching all of these dollars go down from a taxpayer perspective and then watching the prices of healthcare go up on the commercial side. I think if people really realized how much of their income is going to pay for healthcare from the Medicaid perspective for taxes for the employees on the commercial side. I, I think they would, it, it's the number one tax on, on anything, frankly. I mean, I think healthcare spending is more than discretionary spending at this point. And I just have such a drive to figure out a way to help bend that cost curve. Because if we don't, we're going to have a single payer system. And when you move to a single payer system, it's going to hurt the country as a whole in terms of access to healthcare. There is just no doubt in my mind. So that's why I, you know, I got a chance to uh, talk to Joel Lonsdale. And frankly, Joel Lonsdale is like a Governor Burgum 3.0. He is, I, I hate to compare the two because I don't want to offend either one of them, but you know, they believe in innovation. They believe in entrepreneurship. They believe in, you know, ask for forgiveness. 
not permission. I mean, they just, they want to make the world such a better place and they want to do it through innovation, entrepreneurship, and the collection of ideas. And I, I couldn't agree with them more. I wish I had a third or even a fifth of their energy because they're so good at what they do. So with Cicero in operation and you there as a senior vice president, a lot of advocacy, writing, I presume testimony, public appearances, interviews like this. What's the goal for Cicero here over the next couple of years? What does Cicero hope to accomplish in this space, especially given your experience? Generally speaking, I think more transparency into the economics of healthcare and meaningful strategies at a state level where you could actually get them passed to, you know, to your point earlier, Eric, maybe the feds will look at and say, look at Wisconsin, look at Iowa, look at Texas. These have been successful going forward. Uh, There's, there's a number of things, you know, on the list for the following uh, legislative session in 25, but I would say the, the current policies there are frankly very well thought out, well researched, and the fact that the medical industrial complex at times is against them shows how we're, we're entrenched in something that we can't change. And so I think we have to push these smaller things before we push some some larger ones. But you know, like one that's coming up more and more is states that have certificate of need. I mean, we either want to get closer to a free market where even though half of the revenue is coming from taxpayers, we need to create the incentives and entrepreneurships to meet people where they're at and find a way to do it better, cheaper, faster. We can't keep this. We're going to keep doing it the same way. So I, that, that's why I really enjoy it. I, this is my first time on a think tank. I'm not going to lie. I haven't written much. When you're the commissioner, you review 900 contracts. You look for red flags, learning how to read again and learning how to write again. Um, it's, so it's, it's been a lot of fun for me. It's been very therapeutic. So I'm really looking forward to that next session where I can probably have more of my fingerprints on some of the policies going forward, but the ones Cicero has, has now are, are wonderful. Well, that's great to hear. And I'm so glad that you're, you continue to be invigorated with the challenges in healthcare policy, as well as the bigger picture of what happens around healthcare to try to serve the most vulnerable and the most challenged among us. Joe, I think we've been very blessed to have Chris with us today. And we're very thankful, Chris, that you spent time with us walking through a lot of key issues and a lot of key creativity from North Dakota. For those who want to learn more about the Cicero Institute, please check them out at www.ciceroinstitute.org. We'd like to thank our sponsor for the conversation today, Survivors for Solutions, our great producer, John C.Z. Swartaki, our distribution partner, Bigwig Media, and our production team, Evergreen. On behalf of DCEKG, This is Eric Euland with host Joe Grogan. Thanks for listening. We'll be talking.